Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, before we get to Lisa Sharon Harper talking about her new book, The Very Good Gospel, let me tell you about this month's sponsor. It is the E3 conference that our friend Sally Gary with Centerpiece is putting on October 27th through 29th in Dallas, Texas. Now, the event is for those who are wondering how to respond to the needs of parents who have a daughter or a son who are a part of the LGBTQ community. Uh, it's also for those who are searching for better ways to support men and women who are part of the LGBTQ community and a part of your local congregation. It's also for those who are needing a safe place to resolve questions about faith and sexuality. If that sounds like something you're interested in, and it should be, I hope that you would join me and Richard Beck, Sally Gary, Wade Hodges, Sean Palmer, and others October 27th through 29th in Dallas, Texas at the Highland Oaks Church. For more information, click on the link in the show notes, and that will get you to their website. So, hope to see you guys in Dallas, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper. Here we go. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us from the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Lisa Harper Wait, you have a middle name you go with too, don't you? Yeah, I do. Lisa Sharon Harper. How how do you get in the cool like three name club? What what do you do to achieve that level of coolness? Well, I have a mom named Sharon, so that really kind of got me in the club. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you, mom. Thank you, mom. Yeah, that's what I say every day. <laughs> okay, let me, can I tell you a story? Mm-hmm. I like stories. I had seen you kind of like social media, the internet stuff. You're you're obviously. Uh, you work at Sojourners, you, you write, I, I've seen your stuff around. Mm-hmm. And a few months ago, I thought, I would like to meet this person. And I just like, <laughs> well, I don't know, I don't have an excuse to reach out to you. I have no, nothing to talk to you about, but it just seems like you're a person I want to know. And then oh, lo, and behold, lo and behold, a book shows up in my mailbox um, from our oh, friends wow. at the people who produce books. And <laughs> it was your book. And I was like, this is great. I wanted to meet you. Oh, very cool. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that, Luke. I mean, you know, it's funny because um, I was just in Texas not too long ago. Um, The video that we shot for the book was actually shot in Houston. Mm. And I have lots of great friends there. And I just, I love me some Texans. (laughs) You know what? That's a great place to start the conversation with, uh, you know, giving some love to Texas. Because I saw the video. It's a good video, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Now, we talked about this off mic, but the important thing, not only do you appreciate Texas, mm-hmm. both of us were born in Philadelphia. Yes. Yes, we were. Actually, I was born, I have to say, I was born in New York City, but I was raised in Philly okay. for the first 10 years of my life um, uh, in three different neighborhoods there. Okay. I, w- I was born in Philadelphia, lived there till I was 12. And so I, I think our paths never crossed, though. Probably not. No. Probably not. The whole time I was there, I knew one and a half white people, and they I'm were all half person. white. They were all half white, oh. and I don't think that's you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, what, what, what gave that away? What gave it away that I'm fully white? Big time. <laughs> <laughs> you know this? Yeah, I I think I had mm-hmm. my best friend was a gentleman named Samir Hickson when I lived oh, in Philadelphia, wow. and there are not too many white guys who go by the name Samir these days. 
Well, that's true. That is true. Now, I lived in an area that was, it's West Oak Lane, and then we moved to Chestnut Hill, and then Mount Airy. Okay. And in all of our communities, it was really, I mean, you know, Philly is a, is a highly African-American city. I think there was 60% African-American when we were there. And then we moved down to Cape May, New Jersey, where my family was the only black folks I knew, oh, like yeah. literally for like a 15-mile radius. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a, a big, big change there. But that's actually where I met Jesus was, was in Cape May, um, not because Jesus wasn't in Philly, just we didn't go to church, you know, yeah. um, at that point. So yeah, it was you, in high school. You talk, I think you said something in the book about moving there and having to go to school where you're the only person. Now, I, I moved from Philadelphia to rural southeast Ohio where I was one of all white people. And mm-hmm. it was a completely different experience for me because all of a sudden yeah. like, people say racist stuff and we're like, wait a minute, you, you, you do that here? Like, we, we, we still do that? Like, you, you have the flag still hanging in the back of your truck? Like, that's normal here? Um, <laughs> but it's- Yes. Wait, can I just say, when I moved down to Cape May, I had the same experience. And not to say that, you know, Cape May is actually a beautiful city. And, and I owe a lot, a lot to the, to the teachers and the friends that I had there. My youth group director, it's where I met Jesus. You know, but Cape May is, is literally technically the South. It's literally below the Mason-Dixon line. So I saw my first, um, you know, Southern Cross flag in Cape May, and it was above the bed of my best friend. Hello, oh, wow. somebody. Mm-hmm. And, and I also, you know, friends of ours, African-American friends of ours, had a cross burn on their lawn. Um, yes, while, while I was living down there in 1980s somebody so you know so that stuff still happens and i never would have known that in philadelphia because you know we didn't we didn't have that kind of racism there oh my goodness that is that's a cross burn wow that had yeah a major okay the culture shock for me was i moved to ohio and there's some country song that was popped at the time about you know picking the cotton but we never got rich and i don't remember and it's not a racist song but one of the guys on the football team would replace uh, we picked the cotton with the one like half black guy on our football team and say his name there. Mm. And I was like, what? Like, wh- what's going on here? Oh, wow. When, yeah, I don't know. Like when I was living in Philadelphia, w- one of the most traumatic racially inspired situations that I went through was, um, do you remember Cross Colors? Do you remember that? Like uh, it was a clothing company. I think it was like... Um, yeah, it's like the Bloods and the Crips or something. I think that was the etymology of the cross color thing. Anyway, so I I think so. I went and bought a cross color shirt, and I went to purchase it. And I said, "Hey, uh, you're small. You bought a large on accident. You probably should go back and get the right size." And so I went back and I got the a shirt in the right size, a small, because I was like ten and or twelve. And I I got the shirt. I didn't look at it. I buy it. I get home, and the shirt was not the one that I originally picked out. It was a shirt that said, "Let's end black on black violence." Which I'm for that. Mm. I just don't think as a twelve year old white boy I should be wearing <laughs> that shirt. So that Yeah, maybe not the best idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened to that shirt, but I'm pretty sure yeah. I didn't wear it. <laughs> it's a good choice, good choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um let's talk about the book, um, The Very Good Gospel. Now, one of the things mm-hmm. that I see first of all in the book is that you got Walter Brueggemann to write the foreword for it. Yeah, it was really great. And he was a, he, he, I'm sorry, go on. No, how do you know Walter Brueggemann? Well, he wrote, uh, he wrote a blurb for the back of the book, of the last book that I wrote with um, a bunch of friends. Um, uh, 
Soon-Chan Ra, May Cannon, and Troy Jackson, we wrote the book, uh, Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith. And he wrote such a beautiful um, uh, blurb for the back of that book. And one of the things that he really um, talked about in that blurb was that he was very impressed by the, by the work of the theology that was you know, done in the course of the book. Well, I was one of the theologians who actually worked out of, out of two um, on that piece. So I thought, well, maybe you would be interested in actually working with me, um, you know, by doing the foreword on this book. And it was very easy. Just emailed him and he said, yeah, I'll do it. I was like, oh my God, I got Walter Brueggemann. How cool That's is that? That's awesome. So, well, you, yeah, it really was. You talk about the creation story, Genesis 1. And mm-hmm. I would assume that when you have Brueggemann writing the foreword, arguably one of the most prominent Old Testament scholars uh, in the world, writing the foreword, you, like you probably need to like double check your homework a little bit extra to make sure you don't mess that up when his name's on the book. Did, did you feel like pressure like That's um, for real. Like I'm a pastor and mm-hmm. I was uh, doing something uh, in my sermon on Sunday about uh, some medical condition. And it, like it's very humbling to do that when there are actual doctors on the front row and you're like, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. So did you feel that way? Well, yes, I did. I mean, here's the thing is that I, first of all, I know that, um, first of all, yes, his name is on the cover, so I better know what I'm talking <laughs> about if I'm going to do this. You know, and at the very least, um, you know, this is, it's a lot of trust for someone to put in you if they're going to put their name on the yeah. cover with you. Um, so I, integrity really means a lot to me, and I don't ever want to... I'm claiming to know something I don't know. So a lot of the process of the book was actually the research that went into it. Um, uh, but also, I, I, I hang out with theologians. I mean, literally, they're my friends, right? So a lot of the theologians that we read are my friends. And so I would pass stuff by them by giving them a call. And what do you think of this? And, um, you know, have you, what, have you ever heard this? Or is this true that I just read? That kind of a thing. So I checked. And I've also... Honestly, I mean, I've been, I've been speaking and writing on Shalom uh, for 13 years since that pilgrimage that I talked about in the book, in, in chapter one. And so for 13 years, I've been doing this research and testing it out with um, the reading and the research and also with conversations with friend theologians. So I think at this point, the book was ready to be written. Yeah. Um, but it was, it wasn't fear and trembling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Simply for that fact that Walter Bergman was attached to it. Yes, it was. I can't say it wasn't. <laughs> well, yeah. the book begins with you talking about um, trips that you made that shaped how you understand the gospel. And you made trips uh, dealing with some of the places that uh, the Native Americans um, were oppressed. Uh, you dealt with some of the civil mm-hmm. rights, uh, the, the historical markers in the civil rights movement. You even talk about, uh, it was like Croatia, Serbia, uh, some of the war-torn countries mm-hmm. like that. And you talked about how those mm-hmm. trips shaped how you understood the gospel. W- so do you mm-hmm. think, did all three of them shape in a similar way, or did they all point to the same thing, or did each one have their own different place? No, that's a great question. I mean, I think the first trip that I took, it was actually a pilgrimage. We really use that word pilgrimage for a reason, because usually when we think of trips, we think of like vacation oh, yeah. or you know, like um, sightseeing and tour. And the worst thing you can possibly do is to do like a poverty tour, you know, the kind of thing where you're just going and, you know, um, like like you're looking at, at animals in a cage at the zoo. That's not what we wanted to do. We didn't want to do that. What we really wanted to do, to do was in the process of going 
and walking on the land where things happened, where some of the worst stuff that ever happened in our land happened, we wanted to give voice um, and really to recognize the power of the people who experienced that oppression by listening to their stories. Mm -hmm. So there's an empowering act that, that occurs in the transaction of story that we discovered and we were also told this would happen and it really did. So pilgrimage is really okay. more the word that, um, that, that we came to use. And it was a pilgrimage from story to story through a larger story of American um, sin, really, quite mm -hmm. honestly, um, mm -hmm. on this land. And so it was really the first pilgrimage that, that challenged my understanding of the gospel. Um, it was the second pilgrimage that kind of filled in some pieces about what are the requirements for peace and also what breaks peace. Like what is it, what's at the heart of what breaks peace um, between peoples? Um, and the first pilgrimage, I'll go back to that very quickly, that it was the it was the understanding that like I came in with my understanding of the gospel being like mm -hmm. the four laws, you know, like God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, but man is sinful and so therefore separated from God. But if you um, but Jesus died for your sin and so if you pray this prayer, you can basically go to yeah. heaven, you know, um, you can get in. And um, I, you know, I had really when I took this pilgrimage, it was 2003, and we went all the way through the 1990s, um, invested in racial reconciliation and in evangelism. But the people we were leading were feeling like racial reconciliation was like an extra caboose on the on the train of discipleship. Right? It was not necessary. It was it wasn't critical to our faith. It was like, you know, Christianity 4.0 as opposed to Christianity 101. Yeah. Right? Um, or something like that, <laughs> 401 yeah, as opposed yeah, yeah. to 101. And so, yeah, so, so what we realized is that we had to take, we had to, we had to break out of the box of our understanding of what the good news was in order to understand how these two things were integrated. And it really was coming at the end of that pilgrimage, having experienced the worst stuff that ever happened on this land and knowing it happened to my ancestors. Like it happened to my ancestors who had walked the Trail of Tears and my ancestors who were slaves, enslaved in South Carolina um, and Kentucky. And I had to really imagine myself handing the four spiritual laws to my ancestors while on the Trail of Tears or while, you know, shackled in South mm -hmm. Carolina or after they had been raped in Kentucky. Yeah. Would it be good news? Yeah. It, it seems that, like, I, I, I love the conclusion, and I think you're right on, you're spot on with the conclusion. I wonder if the other side from the people would say the four spiritual laws, okay, you, you sinned, you messed up, God forgives you. If you accept Jesus, then you get to go to heaven. That there would be like this I'll fly away mentality that, okay, it's really terrible down here, so you say this prayer, and this is, and this is your, like your, your bus pass to get out. This is your, your plane ticket to fly away from here. And so for some, they, they might hear mm -hmm. that and go, well, yeah, that actually is better instead of this, you know, ongoing work to fix things right now. Why, why is that short-sighted mm -hmm. to just say, hey, pray this prayer and you get to go to a better world when you die? Well, it's short-sighted because it, it, well, first of all, it's that mentality that led many Christians to sit out the abolitionist mm -hmm. movement. I mean, it was, it was literally that, that theology that led American Calvinists in particular 
to say, eh, you know, it's all going to burn with the rest of it. So we're going to just worry about people's souls and not actually go deep into um, into the very injustices that actually are, are here on earth. And it also gives license. I mean, here's the thing. Jesus actually counts licentiousness mm-hmm. as sin, right? Licentiousness is, is sin. And how could anybody be a slaveholder and justify that if not through mm-hmm. licentiousness, right? So, so, I mean, there were slaves who actually said, I'm going to escape and you're going to escape with me. We're going to actually get out of here because we don't want our slave master to be in mm-hmm. sin anymore. We love our slave master too much to let him continue to yeah. be in sin. You know, so, so the, so let me just go back. A lot of it actually has to do with um, that understanding of, of what sin is. I mean, when you talk about sin, I was always taught that sin is missing the mark yeah. of perfection. And if that's what sin is, that's a Greek understanding of sin. I was even told, you know, it's a Greek ar- archery term, right? So sin, um, but that's, we, our faith is not Greek. Our faith mm-hmm. comes from the Hebrews and the Hebrews understood perfection as not existing inside the thing but rather existing between things. So if perfection or actually very goodness, which is what God calls the world when when God looks around at the end of the sixth day in creation, he says, this is very good. If very goodness exists between things, then sin does too. Sin actually is the breaking of those relationships in creation that God called very good. So, you know, that's why, that's why this is central to the gospel. The good news is the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God, the reign of God, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what existed in the very beginning in creation. That's what we see. We see what the reign of God looks like. God makes creation in a way where all things are connected together by love reciprocity, truth, integrity, justice, things are as they should be. That's what God's reign looks like. So when Jesus shows up and says, yo, the kingdom of God is near at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. I believe what he was saying was repent in the ways for the ways that you have contributed to the breaking of all the relationships that God called very good. It's not just repent for not being perfect because only God is perfect in God's self. It's it's repent for not mm-hmm. loving perfectly. Yeah, and it seems as, as I'm understanding this, shalom is like the centerpiece of what we're called to, uh, instead of this like escapist understanding yeah. of, of the gospel. And and a and to use your language, a very good gospel is focused on bringing this shalom and participating. Which I think, obviously, going back to the kingdom of heaven, uh, kingdom of heaven is bringing shalom to earth in a lot of ways. And so when when you talk. That's what Jesus told us to pray. Yeah. He told us to pray that way. Yeah, for sure. So you, you know? when you're talking about the, the two trees in the garden, you have this line where you say the cornerstone yeah. of shalom is love. Okay, so why, why do you think love mm-hmm. is the cornerstone of shalom or peace? Well, you know, the garden story is, you know, it's, it's a second creation story. And in that garden, in paradise, God places these two trees. And one of them is the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the other one is the tree of life and in that place in paradise there's only one place one place in the entire garden where humanity is confronted with Mm -hmm. its need for god 
And I believe, and actually I, I, I first heard um, Steve Hayner, um, Dr. Steve Hayner, who at one point was the president of Introversity, I heard him give a talk on how the, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was placed there to draw us back to God, to draw us, to help us, re remind us of the fact that we need something besides ourselves because there was a command attached to it. There's a command attached to that tree and there's no command attached to anything else. It's like, it's the only boundary in paradise. So it forces us, it forces the question of, do we, do we trust the words of God? Do we trust the counsel of God? Do we, are we going to choose God's way to peace and fulfillment? And, you know, trust is a, is a central ingredient to love. If you, mm -hmm. you can't say you're in a love relationship with someone if you don't trust them or, or you don't choose them. So that, that tree was the place where we get to choose into love relationship with God, right. which is what we were created for. So when the humans actually make a choice, to go against the counsel of God, against the command of God not to eat of that tree, then they have demonstrated a break in trust, which is also a demonstration of lack of love for God. Yeah. So I hope yeah. that helps, yeah. that answers. No, no, <laughs> Tell me if good. I got off course there. No, no, you're doing good. You're doing good. Okay. So <laughs> at the tree, like we deal with, uh, you use the language of God craving, which comes from... Uh, is it Pascal? Is that right? Is that where you're getting that from? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So this, mm -hmm. this idea of like we have this, or I, I think it's Augustine, the God-shaped hole thing that like there's always something that's craving the transcendent that that pulls us there, and so so we see that, and, and part of I, I wonder if you could connect that to the fact that we're all created in the image of God, and we live out of mm -hmm. this image of God, and you have this uh, this story that you begin the book with, or early in the book about an old spiritual song about in heaven, everyone gets to wear shoes or, or something. Yeah, like that. I'm yeah. not going to try to say it exactly as the wording of the yeah. song is because I feel like I'll just botch it. Um, and so what, what was the significance about um, African-Americans singing spiritual songs about having shoes? What, why would that even be included in a, in a spiritual song? Yeah, wow. Well, the way that our society was shaped, it was shaped by law. And those, those, that structure, our legal structure, declared in 1787 that enslaved people of African descent, black people, were only three-quarters, three-fifths of a human being. And so, by law, mm. we were three-fifths of a human being. And as three-fifths of a human being, most, most enslaved people did not have shoes. And shoes were a marker of dignity, you know, like... Those who had shoes had dignity. That was how shoes were seen um, among the enslaved people. So maybe, you know, house slaves might have shoes because they have to be around a lot of white people a lot of time. But field slaves rarely had shoes. In fact, they even rarely had, quite honestly, they, had, they rarely had full-on clothing. They had to string together rags in order to have something to clothe their bodies most of the time. We're now getting more facts about actual, what life was like on actual plantations, and that's coming to the fore now. So clothing, shoes, these are things that, that give dignity that, and, and black enslaved people did not have them. And this is where that goes back to the image of God, because the image of God was something that at the time of the writers of Genesis 1, I came to understand um, during the research that the people who wrote Genesis 1, there's about three different authors that are thought to have written Genesis 
Um, and one of them is a set of authors, um, and these are the priests who were exiting the Babylonian exile, mm -hmm. that those priests were exiting 70 years of oppression. I mean, I, I always heard that before, but I never really, really took it in. I always thought of, okay, you know, these people were taken from their homeland, they're put down in, in some other place, and they live there for a few years, and they get to go back. But no, this was slavery. They were enslaved. They were forced to live in a place that was not their own. They were forced to be in a place where they did not want to be. And they were, they were separated from their families. They had loved ones die in the war that took place before with the Babylonians before they were taken off. So families were separated. There was ultimate despair, destruction, and, and, and oppression for them for 70 years. And that, coming out of that, is... The, the space where they wrote Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. And they get to the height of Genesis 1 and they say, and, and this is the last piece of, of creation that God makes is humanity. And let us make them in our image, in the image of God. Um, and let, it, let them have dominion, the image and likeness, let them have dominion. Mm -hmm. So that word image is actually the same word that they would have used to talk about. It means um, a representative figure at the time in the Babylonian empire, only the king, like only the Babylonian king would have been known or thought to have been made in the image of God. So for them to say all humanity is made in the image of God, it's a revolutionary act for them to do that. It's actually democratizing. Yeah. And then to compound that and to say, and let them have dominion. In other words, all humanity gets to exercise dominion. And that word dominion, it means in the context, it means to steward, to protect, to cultivate the, the, the creation that God has made. So now, now take that back to the, to the plantation, you know, and dignity. We give extra measures of dignity to kings and queens, but in the scripture, it says that all of us are worthy of the same measure of dignity we would normally give to a king or a queen. So in that song that you referenced, it's actually all God's children's got shoes. Mm -hmm. So it was a, it was a reference to the fact that there is somewhere on this, uh, in this world where we may not have shoes here on the plantation, but in God's eyes, in God's economy, we are, we are people who, who possess inherent dignity. And so that, that yeah. song reminded me of that. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry, I got to say one more thing here that that dignity is not just, oh, I'm important. That word dominion is actually, I think, critical because what it says is that these people who were all dominion was taken from them. They were declared by law that they were not created to exercise dominion on this land because of the color of their skin. But what Genesis 1 tells us is, no, that was a lie told by our law that our law told a lie, that actually because they were made in the image of God, they were called and created with the capacity to exercise dominion here in this land. And so our law told a lie, but that spiritual and the scripture told the truth. Mm -hmm. Okay, so some might hear that and think, oh yeah, that's terrible, that happened back then. Uh, it's, it's disgraceful, it's awful, it's uh, just beyond imaginable how people back then could treat others as though that they were less than the image of God. Um, but luckily mm -hmm. we moved past that. 
and we now have, uh, yeah. and we now have a president who's African American. We now have, um, you know, e equality. There's no more Jim Crow law. You know, segregation is gone. Uh, you know, Oprah runs the world. I mean, we we've got uh, we've progressed past that. Um, would you say that there's ways now is that people st are still treated in ways that they are less in the image of God? Absolutely. When you ask the question of how housing is distributed, like, or even more than that, let's, let's go to the, to the root. How, how is education funded in America? Do we fund education as if every single child in every single zip code is actually made in the image of God with the inherent dignity of a king or a queen? No. We treat children as if their, their, their inherent dignity is dependent on the zip code that they were born in, that they live in at the time. And that is dependent on, on the amount of money that their parents are able to put down for a house and keep paying in taxes because education is funded by local taxes. I mean, you know, so if you live in a high rent district or I'm sorry, a high, high per, per capita renters district, as opposed to a high ownership home ownership district, and you actually have usually more children living in that in that space with less uh, housing, homeowner land taxes to actually draw from. So you have less of a base of funding to pay for schools, and you have more children taking up less funding to pay for those schools. Whereas if you live in a in an area where where homes are worth more, and you have even fewer families but more homes, you have less children that are given more money from the local taxes for their schools. Hence, you have AP classes. You have honors classes, you have swim team, you have, you know, rugby, you have what? And then in, in the in the high renter districts, you may not even have books hmm. in your school or lockers for books because you don't even have an expectation of books anymore. And even the teachers that you get are usually emergency credentials because you can't afford anything more than that. So just with that system alone, just taking the education system, we do not structure our society as if we believe that every child is worth, it has the inherent dignity of a king or a queen. Yeah. You can do the same with any of the systems. You can do the same with healthcare. You can do the same with, with the justice system. I mean, you know, you are, you are, I think it's six times more likely if you're an African-American man to be shot um, within two minutes of, of an encounter with a police officer than if you are white. Um, there are 1.5 million black men missing from, from communities because of mass incarceration. I mean, you say everything is equal, but everything is not equal. After the Civil War, we had peonage, where they actually created laws in order to, in order to replace the slaves on the plantations with men who would be taken up because they were sitting on a bench for too long, because they passed laws that you couldn't sit on a bench for too long. So they would take those men and take them and put them into work camps, prison, prison camps. And that's what would then people those, those southern fields, and they would keep that agricultural economy going. That's still going to this day. Um, there's going to be an article coming out in Sojourners um, later on this year that I wrote that's exactly about that. That, to this day, um, utilizing our prison system for free and cheap labor. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, and all the hashtags that we've seen um, go across the Twitter sphere and Facebook for two years have um, have shown us that um, that when it comes to interactions with our justice system, you're much more likely to have an interaction with the justice system at all in the course of your life if you are a person with darker skin, and you're 17 more times likely. Um, 
to uh, one in three black men will have some interaction with the justice system, whereas only one in 17 white men will in the course of their lifetime. Hmm. That's not, you have to explain that by one of things. Either you just think black men are inherently more dangerous and more they should be taken up off the street, which is the implicit bias that actually shapes these systems, or you have to understand that something is wrong in the way that in the way that our system is structured. Yeah. So, okay. So you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me. You mentioned implicit bias, mm-hmm. and I had um, I'd heard of uh, like the implicit bias uh, test. I, I forget what it's called, but um, yes, the Harvard Implicit Association Test. Yeah. So okay, two <laughs> things. One, I I was referencing that in a sermon a couple weeks ago, and so. I had read about it, I think, in Gladwell's book, Blink, which I think is probably the first time I was introduced to it, but I've never actually taken it. Yeah. And so I was taking it mm-hmm. um, last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, and mm-hmm. it's, it's fascinating. It's just a fascinating yep. test because it, 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 it doesn't ask you, hey, are you racist, but it makes you deal with like those <laughs> micro responses that you, you can't mm-hmm. like PC out. Like they're still, they're <laughs> still there. That's exactly right. And so, how, so, go ahead. Yeah, go on. No, 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 go on. No, I was going to say, like you mentioned that uh, it was, I believe, Charles Finney, who in the 19th century was this uh, obviously big time preacher. Everyone knew him. And mm-hmm. in his revivals, right after they would do an altar call, they would uh, they would ask people to sign up for an abolitionist movement. So there was a, this connection mm-hmm. between the message of the gospel and how people dealt uh, with racial issues. And mm-hmm. when you take an, uh, a test or an instrument like the, the implicit bias test, uh, it shows you like there, there are still things that we all, uh, and I say all, I, I, I should just say for myself, but I think that the, the test seems to show that most people are like this. Um, yeah. There are subconscious things that we all need to deal with. How, how do you think yeah. the gospel still does what Finney was doing back in the 19th century, where it makes you deal with um, these type of issues? Oh, that's such a great, that's a great question. So, boy, so first of all, implicit bias, what is it? Um, and then I'll, I'll get into the rest of your question. Implicit bias is the associations that we make unconsciously. Mm-hmm. So, our, I mean, implicit, we all have implicit biases. I mean, implicit biases are really just the things that, that help us to make associations more quickly than, you know, a logical, linear thought process. So I, I can look at a chair and instead of saying this is a chair because it has a back and four legs and a seat. Instead, I just look at it and I go chair, mm-hmm. right? Um, in the same way, I look at a house and I go, oh, that looks like a house because it has a front porch and it has a I don't have to do all that. I just look at it and I go house. Well, that's the kind of, they discovered this in the mid-1990s that we make these associations about each other. And um, and so there's, there's ways that this happens, not by, sometimes it happens explicitly. That's called explicit bias. When yeah. you, you can actually, it's conscious, it's, it's you know, we, we, we can, when somebody actually says black people are violent, that's explicit. That's, we're talking it out, right? But it, implicit bias is unconscious. It usually happens because we've been soaking in these messages for our whole lives, mm-hmm. from everything from what we've heard people say to what we've witnessed to, to the very environment we live in. If we live in an environment where everyone is white um, and everyone is middle class and the only pictures of black people we see are in rap videos you know what i mean like then your understanding of black people is that they are dangerous or they are over sexualized or they are um poor because those are the only images you've seen or even you know getting even a little bit closer to home 
if your only experience with black people has been on a summer mission project where you've gone into the neighborhood and you've given out some sandwiches for a week, you know, or you've done an urban plunge and that's your only experience, that actually tends to reinforce um, implicit biases that have come from media out of, you know, um, uh, wider proximity to, to, the, to the people, less, less interaction with actual people and their stories. Yes. So implicit bias, what they've said is 75% of all people who have taken the test actually have measured, you know, a positive for implicit bias. Mm -hmm. Now, how does that, have, what does that have to do with the gospel is that the gospel is, uh, is the good news of the coming of the kingdom. And I believe that the kingdom of God, one of the big things about the kingdom is that we are all made in the image of God. And so, hey, cut out trying to crush the image of God here on earth because the, the kind of, uh, of governance that we've experienced um, in our families, um, in our society, um, in, through our laws has actually failed to recognize the image of God, the image of God, which exists in all people. And so our laws have actually snuffed out, crushed, diminished the image of God among us. So the, the kingdom coming is meant to release, to fan the flames of, to protect, to cultivate the image of God in all people. So getting in touch with our implicit bias helps us to be able to partner with God rather than actually working against the cause of God, yeah. to, to recognize the image of God in the other, to cultivate it, to, to protect it, to serve it, um, and, to, and to, to acknowledge it. And then, you know, when we are structuring our structures, our churches, um, our retreats, um, when we are voting and, and we are voting for people who are going to shape and create law, then we can actually, we can then uh, be aware of our implicit biases there. And instead, what I actually recommend is that we do these things for the sake of the other. We vote for the other. Hmm. Um, we build our structures in order to serve and love the other rather than ourselves, which is, isn't that, isn't that what love is all about? This is just public love is what we're talking about. We're talking about loving in public. Yeah. So I'm rambling now, no, but, that, but I hope that. No, but that, I mean that that is ultimately uh, that that yeah. is what what love is. So let me let me tell you an interesting thing. So I took this test uh, a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago, and while I was taking the test, uh, I got a call from a buddy of mine, uh, a black guy, who calls mm -hmm. me up, and so I stopped taking the test because I was supposed to talk to him about something, and he says, "Luke, what are you doing?" And I said, "Uh, well, I'm I'm taking a test to see how racist I am," and. I thought that was pretty funny. He thought it was funny too. It was, you know, it was, it was a good. He goes, oh, "You don't need to take a test. I can tell you that." And so it was a joke between two friends, <laughs> right? Well, uh -huh. well, I was going to reference this in that uh, sermon the week after, and so I have this uh, like focus group who I meet with on Thursday. Different people from my church that I just mm -hmm. practice my sermon and they listen to it. And uh, the group was mm, five people that were probably forty-five plus, all Caucasian, all white people. And so mm -hmm. I tell that story, and I've told that story to a handful of people before that, and they all said, oh, that's really funny. And a couple of people said, oh, I feel really uncomfortable by that story. And I was like, what do you mean? They go, well, mm -hmm. I don't know, just something doesn't seem right about you making a joke about that. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't understand at the time what it was. And the person was being as helpful as they could. Uh, I think a, a second person chimed in and said, I, I had the same experience. I, did, I didn't feel comfortable when you told that story. And... Mm -hmm. I, I think in hindsight, what I've tried to process is that I'm probably 10, maybe 15 years younger than the, the person who said that. 
And the attitude of someone my generation, my age, and someone who's 15, maybe 20 years older than me, it, it's drastically different in terms of race. And so mm -hmm. a joke like that would be kind of funny to people in my demographic, but people who maybe live through more overtly racist times, it's not something to joke about. Mm -hmm. they, they don't see the humor in that. Do you think I'm, do you think I'm onto something mm -hmm. there? I mean, I, yeah, I think that, that could be it. I mean, I also think that I, I really just, I mean, look, here's another funny story. So when I moved from Philadelphia, uh, remember, 60% African-American. And, and like I said, I only knew one and a half white people and they were all three half white, uh -huh. right? So, <laughs> so I mean, I, I went from an area where like literally my, it was a normal thing in my family for us, you know, black is, black is beautiful and I'm black and I'm proud oh, and I yeah. shout it out loud. This is 1970s, right? So like black was never a bad word, but I moved to Cape May, New Jersey. And all of a sudden, like the friends that I would get, they would, they would, they would say, um, you know, I, I I, I went to the store the other day and I picked up this um, black book. I'm sorry, did I say a bad word? Like, so the word black was a bad word. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing, yeah. but it's, it's like, no, no, black is not a bad word. I remember having my first conversation with my yeah. another best friend in high school where, you know, she, she told me, I don't think of you as black. I got so bad. I was because like, I'm thinking of all my aunties and, and cousins and uncles and my brothers and sisters and my mom and dad, all of whom are black and my ancestors. And so for her to not think of me as black was to literally wipe away a large part of my experience in America. So I think that I think there's an uncomfortability about talking about race for people who never have to talk about race. Oh, OK. Um, and. See, so like people who are basically people who are white who live among other white people and never really have interactions, they think of themselves as not racist if they don't talk about yeah. race. But that's not not being racist. I mean, race, racism is not about talking about race or not talking about race. Racist, to be racist is to allow one's implicit and explicit biases to, to shape their actions in the world specifically around power, whether or not they take advantage of the, of the, of the um, privilege they have as white people, um, or, or whether or not they actually actively help to dismantle um, uh, the, the structures, the systems, mm -hmm. the cultures of privilege, the cultures that privilege whiteness in America. Yeah, I, I think yeah, it's definitely w what are you doing about power. I think that's a, a great point, and um, yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, hey, let me say this about the book, The Very Good Gospel. It's a very good book. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for taking it. Thank yeah, you. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me about it, and um, yeah, I hope everyone goes out and buys this book. So well done. I really appreciate that. Can I just say one last thing about it real oh, quick? Is that sure, come on. I think it's, it's, it's important to also understand that the gospel is not just about race either, but it's integrated, right? So it's all of the relationships that God created in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So it's about the relationship with ourselves with regard to shame mm -hmm. and um, the ways that we, we have broken relationship with ourselves. It's about the relationships that are broken in our families, um, the that are broken between men and women, um, between races, yes, and cultures, but also between nations. So the full integration of that good news of the coming of the kingdom of God and the restoration of all of those relationships and what that means, that's really what the book is mm -hmm. about. 
Yes. Well, if you didn't hear it right there, <laughs> you know Lisa's got a lot of good things to say. So much so that she has to keep on talking because there's good things that she, she needs to communicate. <laughs> and you can get all Thank that you. and more in this new book. So, Lisa, thanks again for the time. It's been great meeting you, and uh, job well done. Thank you, Luke.